Happy Monday. Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd, my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Strantz, also covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. As I said, I am live from the Kintech studio. Drancer is on the road in our nation's capital, Ottawa, where the Canucks, they practice this morning. Uh, they will play the Ottawa Senators, kicking off a five-game road trip tomorrow. Drance, how is Ottawa treating you? Well, I'm in Canada. Let's be very clear about where exactly I am. And I'm actually coming at you live from the bowels of the Canadian Tire Center. Very good. Out in the, you know, uh, outskirts. Yes. Outskirts of Ottawa and Canada itself. The Canucks practice today. Some some line changes. Some things for us to discuss. Some some Riley Stillman criticism to push back on. <laughs> we'll get to it all. Excited to be doing the show this week from the road in the lead up to... To the Sedin Twins yes. and Roberto Luongo's induction into the Hockey Hall of Fame on Monday. I will be there in Toronto. Really excited for this road trip. Even though, obviously, if I could, you know, draw it up myself, right? I'd probably uh, have three nights in Montreal and one in Canada. <laughs> yeah, you do it the opposite way, yes. Yeah. Drance is coming to us live from the, the empty fields surrounding Ottawa, which is inexplicably where the Ottawa Senators hockey rink uh, is at least currently located. Yeah, for the moment, anyway. Yes, for the moment. We'll see how that develops. Um, Yeah, we, look, as you said, some line changes uh, at practice, some interesting things to dissect there. But I do want to, I mean, first of all, just quickly touch – on the game on Saturday against Nashville, which was one of the weirder games of the year, probably the weirdest game of the year, I would say, for the Canucks, losing the 3-0 lead, uh, you know, and then ultimately losing 4-3 in the shootout. They get the point, but they drop the extra point that they could have had against a conference rival. I want to touch on that quickly and also just kind of where this team stands going into this five-game road trip and what's really at stake in terms of, you know, the playoff chances for this season, but also maybe the direction of the team going forward uh, as we head into these five game, this five-game road trip as well. I know you have a good piece up at The Athletic right now touching on all of that. But, yeah, quickly I did want to touch on uh, on the game on Saturday night because – I don't really know. What, I don't know what, quite to, quite what to make of it, Drancer. Like, really, I don't. I, it was they didn't play well in the third period, but I also don't think it was like this a cataclysmically embarrassing effort on the face of it. Except that it's the latest example of blowing another multi-goal lead in a very winnable game, right? I it was uh, it was one that left me scratching my head to say the least. Well, it's a sign of how low the bar has got in our evaluations. I think. That we look at that, I mean, one thing that I was sort of coming out of that game talking about or thinking about to myself was, you know, as things went against this team, I felt like their battle level stayed high. I felt like the effort level stayed high. I felt like they were still attacking in various moments of the game. And I was like, and I like that. You know, that's good. This team, I think we've seen things snowball on them, both positive and negative, over the course of the last few seasons. And, you know, I liked that, Faced with, you know, a, a point shot goal against and then a breakdown that Nashville capitalized on, the Canucks didn't wilt. They, they came back. I thought they were, you know, absolutely, you know, 
equal to the task in that third period, even if they didn't get it done. And even if the last five minutes turned into a let's both get a point Mm -hmm. gentlemen's agreement uh, slog. And so, you know, I like that. I liked their game. I would say that their game was for me their best 60 minute effort of the season. Now, again, that's damning with faint praise, but I think it's true. I legitimately think the Canucks came out against a Nashville Predators team that they match up well with, right? That's not a team that moves the puck particularly fast. I think the game itself was a a bit of a stodgy affair, right? Like it just, there wasn't a lot of flow to that game. There wasn't much continuous action. Both of these teams feel a little bit mirror image to each other in in, in a lot of ways. And even within the game, even within the game, Drance, I mean, the Canucks got up three, nothing, but it didn't feel like they were dominating. And then they blew a three, nothing lead. And it didn't feel like they were getting dominated. You know what I mean? Oh, Really? I felt like, I felt like they had a really dominant first period. I I thought thought they they had their, they were the clearly the better so much better, but I didn't think it was like overwhelming necessarily. Oh, I did. I thought it was one of the first times that the Canucks uncorked, you know, a gear, uh, an ability to dictate play against a team that's, you know, credible, like mm. really credible. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Penguins are credible too, but the Penguins, you know, that game was more uh, Canucks frustrate the Penguins type game. This was a game where I felt like they dictated. And it was the first time I'd felt that way when they were playing a team that, you know, I think's probably playoff caliber. And so I liked that. I, I thought the first was fantastic. I thought it was a really good performance on the whole. It's just that the result didn't go their way. The penalty kill remains a, a problem. And, you know, I still think the overall structural integrity of this lineup, you know, should be should be called into question on a pretty regular basis. Right. Like the errors that we are seeing in terms of the seams being allowed on the pet penalty kill, um, you know, in terms of some, some of the positioning stuff that we're seeing. And by the way, it's not just one third pair defensemen. Stop it. You know, it's I, I know that there was a bad read and a couple bad games in a row and all of a sudden everyone's blaming one guy for mistakes that you can see any Canucks player make on any given night. You know, like it's not never just on one guy in the NHL. And, um, you know, that's been a sort of popular rallying cry for Canucks fans over the past few days that uh, has sort of baffled me. But, yeah, I mean, there was, you know, I, look, it wasn't they couldn't get it done. Some of the issues remained, and yet, on the whole, I thought it was a really strong effort. And, you know, now that we've seen it sort of accumulate uh, for, for many of the past few games, I do think it was like this moment, you know, if you go back and look at the last five games, the, the Seattle game was probably their worst of the five, mm-hmm. even though that was their first win of the season. The Penguins game, they were really good early and managed to hold a lead relatively responsibly, right? The, the New Jersey Devils game, they got pummeled especially as the game went on in, in a way that was sort of more consistent with what we saw at the start of the year. But they also, you know, frustrated the Devils. The Devils looked slower against Vancouver than they have against any other opponent they've played this year. That's, that's to some extent a credit to the Canucks. And then the Ducks game, I thought the scoreline flattered Anaheim. Vancouver, that, that game was never close once Vancouver took the lead. I thought the Canucks were far better there than, you know, in terms of overall form than, than, than an 8-5 scoreline. And I like their game against Nashville. So, you know, we're, we're at a point now where after 10 games, I would have said the Canucks had pl- outplayed their opponent twice in 10, right? And then the last two, I think they've rather handily outplayed their opponents. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the one from the, uh, the other one of those 10 would have been the Pittsburgh games. So th- what, that's three of their last four? Uh, that's something. I don't know if it's enough, but it's something. And, and I think sort of comes back to... to 
you know, the overall talent level that this team still has and the fact that this club is very clearly, despite where they look, uh, where, where they're perched in the standings at the moment when you check NHL.com, like they are a pretender in the, in the Connor Bedard race. This is a team that's going to get probably to 85 points at least. This is a team that very well could get to 90. I wouldn't be stunned by that at all. So, you know, the wins are going to come, particularly if this uptick in form, and it's a real uptick, is consistent and maintained against a pair of clubs that match up, you know, that they should match up pretty well with. Ottawa and Montreal are not fast teams that attack north-south very dangerously. Like, th these should be games that the Canucks can at least hang in and pro probably win if their star players are up to their usual form. And so, you know, they do that. Well, you're going into Toronto for that Hockey Night in Canada game that we worried about a couple of weeks back, and you're looking like, you know, not, not one of, if not one of the hottest teams in the league, then certainly a team that's at least stabilized what's going on. The problem for me is that even as, as you say, they have stabilized and they've had some of their best performances in terms of five-on-five -five play in their la you know, over the last week, over their last five games – as you look at their kind of overall profile, now granted, we're still only 12 games in, right? So it's still a little bit early to be kind of forming, you know, concrete conclusions about uh, the the upside of a team or the, the actual ability of a team. But if you look at their profile right now, even with this little uptick, you know, they're still bottom 10, kind of relevant five-on-five -five metrics, shot attempts, scoring chances, expected goals, whatever you want to say. A lot of people have been talking about the goaltending and Thatcher Demko, but their five-on-five -five save percentage is actually a hair above league average, right? It's been 922% yep. at five-on-five. Five. So and you know, yeah, a lot of the struggles... A lot of that is Spencer. Yeah, <laughs> A lot of that is Martin, sure, who's 925. But, he's, but Demko's 914. I mean, he hasn't been the issue for them five-on-five. Five. He's been part of the issue on the PK, but man, there have been more breakdowns in front of him than there have well, been bad goals allowed on him. So if you're going to look at the goaltending, I mean, you can the struggles statistically in the goaltending are coming on the penalty kill. And as you said, how much of that is on the goalies? How much of that is on the penalty kill? How much will that realistically improve, right? And look, Demko, I think, is going to go on a heater at some point. I don't think the penalty kill will be, you know, historically bad. But overall, their kind of raw five-on-five play-driving numbers profile as a team, like, bottom 10, you know, something like that. But, like, between bottom 10 and, and bottom 12 in that neighborhood and is Demko going to go on enough of a heater and will the PK improve enough to really kind of lift and paper over uh, what we're still seeing again and again at five on five I think that's really the question I would wager probably not but it's still early enough in the season that you know their playoff hopes are far from hopeless at this point they're not in nearly as dire straits as they were when Bruce Boudreau took over right but I just think it's also not the kind of situation you know as much as we've sat we've sat here and said uh, a few times this year like hey I actually kind of liked what they did five on five that overall profile is still not particularly heartening if you're looking if you're trying to find glimpses and, and signs of a team that can go on a real sustained run it's pretty tough to find with the Canucks right now yeah I mean the the last five games gives you something gives you something meaningful in my view but you still would wait the overall body of work 12 games. I mean, we're only talking about what a 600 minute sample of five on five ice time to this point. Yeah. You know, I, I often say, I don't know what a team is until game 30. So we're a ways away from us having any, I think definitive grasp on exactly what the sort of overall true talent level of this group is at five on five. There are some promising signs, right? Like the huge Shen pair has been really good. Uh, I think Ethan bears come in and played really well. 
Uh, one reason that I sort of am looking at that side-eyeing, as it were, that five-game uptick in five-on-five form is it coincides with Hughes returning to the lineup and Ethan Bear being added to the team, right? And, and I think Bear's played really well. The, the, the issue that remains for me is Ethan Bear shouldn't be able to come onto an NHL roster. Like, he's a nice player, but he shouldn't be able to come onto a roster and look like he's playing a different sport than the rest of your defensemen, right? Like, he shouldn't look materially different <laughs> in terms of how he can move the puck and key the rush than every Canucks defenseman other than Hughes. Like, that's, that almost is an indicator of a larger problem rather than a credit to, you know, the, the, the trade or, or Bears performance. And I, I do think that's sort of where the, this Canucks team is. Look, it's so early that you can find reasons for optimism. You can find reasons for negativity. My view of it, the Canucks are going to win more games going forward than they have in the first 12. I think they're going to be an absolute pretender without work to get into the Bedard lottery odds mix. I think that's going to require moves to weaken this group. Um, And, you know, I think even if they get going in the right direction, right, I still see a cap on what their sort of ceiling is and view that as problematic because it's not high enough, right? Like, it's not high enough to justify the struggles that this organization went through, especially from 2014 to 2019, and, but, but, but since, too, right? I mean, this team should be in a better spot considering the young talent on the roster, and yet they're not. I don't see a way forward. So I'm not trying to have my cake and eat it here, too, uh, Jamie, although I do like cake. <laughs> I, I, I'm just trying to explain, like, this team can be both better than they've looked and that can still be not good enough once they hit, you know, a ceiling that probably more closely approximates their true talent. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, as as I was pointing to their shot metrics as kind of a critique of the team, but to your point about the Bedard sweepstakes, it also clearly sets them apart from the bottom feeders, right? The, The clear cut bottom five teams in the league. You can also look at the resume and say, well, they're definitely not that. And that's before you factor in, you know, probable improvement from Thatcher Demko, at least some regression from the penalty kill. Now, uh, and 650-650, by the way, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You can get your thoughts in. So your latest piece up at The Athletic about things things you know and things you think about the Canucks through 12 games. And, you know, I think one of the things I want to focus on first uh, from that piece is some of your reporting about where the organization stands, where management stands on this team right now and on what might be the path forward. I should also uh, let our listeners know that Canucks president of hockey operations, Jim Rutherford, is going to be on uh, the station on Canucks Central, Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah at 5 o'clock this evening. So we'll have a chance to hear from Jim Rutherford as well. But, you know, look, playoffs still very much a realistic possibility here, as much as they've dug themselves a hole. But I think it was Quinn Hughes on Saturday who kind of said, you know, this five-game road trip figures really large in that, right? We need to have a good trip or else the playoffs start to become much more of a distant, unlikely goal if we don't really capitalize. And I'm curious to kind of hear your read on, based on your conversations and the work you've been doing on the phones, you know, what's kind of at stake, I don't want to say just on this road trip, but in the next couple of weeks in general, how can a a bad performance or continuing to dig that hole, how will management view that? And, you know, the the key thing, I think, is that you also suggested that there might be some organizational willingness to, as you said, maybe do a little bit of that work to to try to get into the Connor Bedard sleep, uh, sweepstakes, depending on how things go over the next little bit here. Yeah, well, and I don't think it's a secret. This It gets late early. Like, it gets late early. This team's running out of time to turn their season around, right? I mean, they're already at the point where they have to 
play at a hundred point pace over the balance of the season, a level that I, you know, if you told me the Canucks can be a hundred point team before the season, I would have said, I don't think so. So now they already have to be at a level that's above where I view their true talent level at uh, for 70 games, just to get to 94 points, right? Like a couple more losses here, a couple more failed opportunities to bank points. And the math gets really grim, really fast, especially in a Western conference where, you know, we've seen a couple of the teams that maybe we thought might be in the mix with Vancouver are clearly not, right? Like Dallas and Vegas are not going to be frittering around in wildcard spots, right? Those teams are going to win top three spots in their division, right? So that removes two teams from the race. Even the teams that are sort of lingering that you think the Canucks should certainly be peers with have a big lead now on the Canucks in terms of points banked, right? Your Seattle's your uh, Winnipeg's, your Nashville's, Um, you know, and and the Canucks obviously wasted an opportunity to take a bite out of Nashville in Vancouver over the weekend. So, you know, it gets, it gets dicey from a math perspective. It gets dicey from a just fierce competition. And this is a crowded field perspective. And so if the losing continues, right? Like if this team doesn't get it turned around in, in a pretty dramatic fashion in the next month, you know, you're going to be back in the same position they were last year. And I I do think there's, you know, certainly at least an understanding that pursuing the dead cat bounce isn't helpful, right? Hurts you. Uh, Being stuck in the middle is not conducive to winning over the long haul or building a winning team. Um, You know, I do think that if this club can't find a way to get a fair few points, like at least six on this, on this five game swing, you know, I, I think they're going to be – I think management's going to be in a, in a position where they absolutely have to consider just about any and everything to make sure that, uh, that they, you know, set themselves up, set themselves up to accomplish their goal of turning this around a lot quicker than I sort of suspect it can be turned around. And the easiest way to do that, get a really good player. Get a really, really good player <laughs> through the draft. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them at the top of the draft. You don't have to be last this year to get a potential difference maker or a player who profiles as a guy who could be the best or the second best guy on a, on a cup team down the road. Yeah. And, and again, to kind of return to my overall analysis of where this team stands right now. Yeah. I don't think they're going to be a bottom three or a bottom five team, but could I see them being, you know, having the eighth worst record in the NHL at the end of the year? Yeah, absolutely. And that sets you up one. I'd still fade that. I, I'd oh, still fade oh, that. Oh, sure. I'm not saying I would I would bet on it, but I don't think yeah. it's out of the realm of possibility whatsoever based on how they've played uh, so far this year and based on the roster. It's, it's definitely not outside the realm of possibility, but if you look at it by point percentage, right, um, of the teams below the Canucks, I think the St. Louis Blues and the Ottawa Senators are probably as good or better. Right. Mm-hmm. If you look at the teams above them, though, like the Arizona Coyotes currently have a higher. Yeah, there's point Ari- percentage. there's Arizona, there's Chicago, there's Montreal. Montreal yeah, Chicago. Um, you know, there's a there's a number of these teams that I think are going to come back to earth in a major way. Right. I- I'd probably include like Winnipeg sixth in the NHL by point percentage, but I, I suspect that they're catchable from a Canucks perspective. Right. Same with the Kraken. I I wouldn't be stunned, despite the fact that the Kraken and the Jets are two of the top 10 teams in the league through the first 12 games, if the Canucks end up on par or certainly within five points of both of those clubs at the end of the season. So the pack is going to return to them, I think, especially if they continue to play the way they have the past week. 
and you know, I think it's going to take work. I think it's going to take work to end up being a bottom eight team. I think this team's like the 20th best team, 18th to 20th best team as sort of a low-end low scenario. Now, the good news for them, if you want them to lose, is that they've sort of hit almost the, the first part of that script coming true, right? <laughs> like in the Doctor Strange sees every scenario of how this could <laughs> possibly occur, right? This is probably in the bottom 10 percentile of, of what a Canucks start would look like, wouldn't you say? I mean, this is, you know, Demko's not... It's got to be there, yeah. Demko's not on fire yet. JT Miller has struggled as a center. Um, you know, the team's penalty kill is just as bad as last season, if not worse, right? I mean, there's an awful lot that's gone poorly for them. Uh, there, there's a few things that have gone well, though, in, in Kuzmenko and uh, Patterson being, you know, th- a fireball thrower and, and Bo Horvat's goal scoring, um, you know, tear. So it's not all on the all on the downside, but I'd still say in, on balance from a team performance standpoint, you'd say this is probably, you know, in, in and around. You know, if it's not the worst case scenario for the club through 12 games, you can see it from there. Right. And so, you know, that that puts them on the front foot. <laughs> in an effort to tank, I don't think they're ready yet to go down that route. I think it's going to be on this group of players to show management that they don't need to. And, and I think more than anything, that's the challenge here, right? It is get this turned around or else. Get this turned around or else. I do think there's a real sense of that uh, around the organization. And yet, you know, I, I also think around the organization, there's a sense that this team's biggest issues remain the structure with which they play. Um, I don't know that that sense implies anything positive about how Boudreaux's work uh, through training camp and to begin the season is regarded. Uh, I think that's sort of a big lingering question here too. But, you know, in that as well, I sort of wonder how the Canucks would consider and approach that in the event things don't turn around quickly, uh, in part because, you know, I I don't get the sense that there's a willingness to chase a dead cat bounce. I think if there's a situation where this team is going to be bad, you know, there's a recognition that they might as well lean into that. I guess the question for me is, first of all, I think that's very interesting to hear, right? That even if it's not a full-on, you know, we're going to tear it all down and rebuild, there's at least, as you said, a willingness to kind of lean in to not being good this year. I think that's that's very, very interesting to hear and to consider what it means. My question is, what would that look like in practice, right? Because as much as I have, you know, talked about on the show how I want to see a change of direction, I have no problem calling it a rebuild, but I really don't want to get hung up on the semantics of it. I'm also aware that, you know, the kind of fantasy hockey, burn it all down in, in November or December, trade all of your players and, and call up the guys from the AHL team. Like, I understand why that's not going to happen. That's not realistic. I don't think that needs to happen. But if there is a willingness to kind of, as you said, lean into it, turn into it a little bit, I'm very, very curious about what that actually looks like in practice. Like, what are the moves that you put in place that you set in motion if that's what you decide to do? Because it's easier said than done to just jettison massive amounts of talent uh, from your team in the middle of the season. Well, here's one thing that absolutely has to happen if the team is not going to turn it around relatively rapidly here. Predictable roles for Jack Rathbone, Niels Hoaglander, and Vasily Podkolzin. Right? That's step one. Step one, two, and three, right, is if this team is not, if the veteran players on this team are not going to get this righted and righted dramatically and in a hurry, 
right, then at some point this team needs to look ahead. And it doesn't require transaction to get started on mm. that. It requires prioritizing development in player deployment decisions on a day-to-day basis, which clearly have, has not occurred to this point, and it hasn't helped the Canucks win games. So why? Like, why? At some point, that's, I think, the first bellwether. That's the canary in the coal mine. The first thing that changes if this club's posture regarding their chances this season does meaningfully change, and I, I don't think we're there yet, but I think, we're, I think we could be close if the wins don't start to come with regularity here. I think the first sign is going to be already on the roster in terms of how this team deploys the players on it. That's going to be very interesting to track. We will be able to dig into a little bit of that next because we saw some uh, some interesting changes. Maybe it's also some interesting lack of changes in the Canucks lineup when they practiced in Ottawa. So we'll continue to break down that. Plus, take your texts. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. More Canucks talk coming up here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here with you the day before the Canucks begin a five-game road trip. First up in Ottawa tomorrow against the Senators. Uh, I'm live from the Kintec studio. Drance is on the road in Ottawa, in Canada, excuse me. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Coming off the loss on Saturday against the Nashville Predators, a lineup shuffle in a lot of ways, at least up front for Bruce Boudreaux and the Canucks on the practice ice in Ottawa. So I'll run through the lines here, Drancer. Uh, I'll start with the forward grouping. We can dig into that, and then we can move on to the defense. But at forward. Miller back playing center, skating on the top line between Tanner Pearson and Brock Besser, who was a full participant in practice. Elias Pettersson uh, still with Kuzmenko and Mikheyev. Horvat, Pud Colson, and Garland. And then on the fourth line, Niels Amon, Dakota Joshua, and Jack Studnika. The extras, Niels Hoaglander and Sheldon Dry. So a lot to dig into there. But most notable for me from a kind of big picture perspective is that top nine, that's those are the lines that we saw day one of training camp, right, that Bruce Boudreaux talked about. I would really like to have our opening night lines together. Now, injuries and other things happened that made that not possible, but I thought it was very interesting that, all right, Miller's back at center. Let's try to go with how we had it you know, in our mind's eye at the beginning of the season and see if we can get that to work now 12 games into the season. Yeah, I'm a little concerned because I think Miller's better on the wing. I thought he was deeply uninvolved in the build-up attack and the attack generally. Uh, Pearson, Miller, Besser was such a good line for the Canucks last season, but to open this season, there was just nothing going on there. I don't think they can have a long leash. The Canucks can't afford at this juncture in the season considering how much these points are going to mean and considering the fact that this Ottawa Senators team Maybe they've underperformed Vancouver from a point perspective uh, viewpoint, but their process has been way better, right? Like this team is not uh, a bottom feeder that's just been a thorough disappointment. This is a team that's actually played pretty well and started slow um, with some, you know, really bad shooting luck in particular, which you'd think would would sort of begin to turn considering the talent level, um, you know, up up and down their lineup, but especially in their top six. I mean, you look at a player like Alex Dabrinkit, Alex Dabrinkit's one of the six highest goal scorers in the NHL over the past 
two seasons going into this year, he has two goals in 11 games shooting 4.1%, right? Like, it's not like he's not generating shots. He's got 49 of them, right? Like, he's almost get, he's getting four shots a game plus. He just he's, The puck's just not going in for him. Uh, I would expect that that won't last. Dabrinkit is too good, too lethal for, for that to continue. So this is a tough assignment. It's not like the Canucks can allow, you know, time for this experiment that they liked in their mind's eye and on a whiteboard and that we never really got to see because Besser got hurt and then Mikheyev got hurt um, and then it sort of snowballed mm-hmm. and then they were just trying to sort of patch over those holes. Um, like, I don't, I don't think you can wait. I don't think you can give them a long leash if it's not working. If it looks like it did in the first week of the season, in the first or second period against Ottawa, like, that's probably it. That's probably it. you got to go back to what's been working. And what the Canucks had going had been working, right? The team's five-on-five form had gone in the right direction. Uh, so, you know, I, I feel like this is a bit of a, a Hail Mary, like a bit of a risk. Uh, and, and maybe that's what the club needs. Like, maybe that's what the club needs to – patch the narrative that it's like now we're healthy now we're on the road we've weathered the storm let's get cooking maybe that's part of the message maybe that's in fact exactly what Boudreaux's trying to instill in going back to these day one lines but uh, considering the performance we saw out of that Besser Pearson Miller group uh, considering the speed on that line I'm a little bit concerned um, you know that they're going away from what's been working as they sort of stabilize their season over the course of the past ten days. Well, especially you look at that line in particular, right? Miller with Pearson and Besser, and I mean, there's question marks about all three of those players, right? <laughs> with Miller moving back to center, where he he struggled to start the season, uh, he's played better at wing, no doubt about it. But now he's moving back to the center of the ice, so that's a question mark. How's that going to go? Brock Besser is returning from injury, uh, and Tanner Pearson, who ha- I don't think has been strong this year. I think he's done some. Some nice things in the fourth line role, right, as a four checker. But I don't think it. And look, I'm someone who's been generally pretty positive about Tanner Pearson and the way he can play uh, with some of the top players like JT Miller, the way he played last year with them. But I haven't really looked at Tanner Pearson's game at any point this year and said, you know, that's a guy you've got to find a way to get in the top six. That's a guy you've no. got to find a way uh, to get more even strength minutes for in offensive situations. So. There's a lot of question marks about that line. And and to your point, it's not just Ottawa, but this whole road trip. Yeah, I know it's Montreal then on Wednesday, but then it's a brutally tough back-to-back at Toronto, at Boston. And as we talked about in the first segment, the stakes already feel really, really high. The players are acknowledging it, that this road trip is going to have huge ramifications for how the rest of the season uh, plays out. So I can understand going back to it, but the thing is, Miller and Horvat, I thought, were playing pretty well together. And I wonder at this point also if you just have to load up that top six, right? And, yeah, maybe that means you end up playing somebody who you like. They end up being farther down the lineup than you would prefer. But I think if this was, you know, Horvat, Miller, and Besser on the top line and then Pedersen, Kuzmenko, and Mikheyev is your second line, I think I would feel a lot more confident about the uh, the potential of those of that top six. Well, yeah, and, I mean, let's let's look at it this way. In 82 minutes – that Miller has played with Bo Horvat. Let's call that the minutes he's played on the wing, right? Yeah. Um, the Canucks have outshot their opposition by two, right? If we use Besser as just like a, a, a lukewarm compromise as a way of sort of looking at what the Canucks are when Miller's played center, um, you know, they've been outshot by seven, right? I, I mean, to this point, Miller's work at center over the course of the season has been an awful lot better. Uh, you know, you, you go, if you want to go by something like expected goals percentage, because the goals for, um, you know, without Bo Horvat, the Canucks are even in goals for when Miller and Horvat are together. 
uh, Hor- uh, Miller's been outscored two to one mm. without Horvat, right? So uh, look at the expected goals. Uh, 59% of expected goals for with Miller and Horvat on the ice. That's a great number. That's a great number. Uh, 28.25%. <laughs> that's not Miller a great without number. Bo Horvat. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's as dramatic a split yes. as you can get. And so that's the fire that the Canucks are playing with here. It's a boom bust play by a head coach that's looking to press every button he can to try and get this team to play the way they did in the last 57. Um, That's what it looks like to me. That's what it feels like to me. I understand why you try it, right? If, if If it's a matter of belief, right, this is the play that, that you might as well call out of your playbook, right? If it's about the hockey and it's not about, if it's a personnel issue, then the play would be to stick with what was working. Boudreaux clearly thinks that the belief side is what his team needs more. And the flip side of Miller going back with Pearson and Besser, it means that Horvat uh, ends up playing with Vasily Podkolzin and Connor Garland. And, you know, I think there's some... There's some risk on that one as well, because Horvat obviously I think has been your second best forward this year. Yes, I know it's a lot of it is percentage driven, and that's not going to sustain. But I, I do think he's been uh, really good as well. And you he's know, clearly been this team's second best yeah. player. I mean, there's no, and it's not just the goals. Like the some of the goals will come back to earth, but the rest of it won't. And I mean, look, here's the other thing, right? Yeah, you worry a little bit. Like, why would you mess with Horvat's success when he's on fire like this? It's only three five on five goals in twelve games. To this point, right? Um, he's actually only shooting 13.64% five-on-five. That's not that overheated considering his career numbers, right? Um, in fact, Horvat's probably not generated as much five-on-five as you'd like, to be totally honest, in terms of the scoring chances he's getting. So, you know, I'm not too worried about the five-on-five dip, or, or messing with success by dropping Horvat a little further down the lineup. I think the thing that worries me far more is, um, you know, can Miller drive a line by himself at the moment? Can Miller be the engine on a line, or does he actually need a guy like Horvat helping him out right now? Yeah. Um, you know, that, that to me is the big question. I'm not even saying one or the other. Like, it doesn't make sense that Miller would be able to do what he did last season and then come in and struggle to the extent that he has playing center. I'm sure we'll see a higher baseline of performance from him. Well, I'm not sure, but I'd imagine we'll see a higher baseline of performance from him going forward should he stick at center. I just don't know that this club has enough high-end wingers to afford moving him to center, to be totally honest with you. like I think you're right. I think this team needs to load up their top six. I think that's their best bet. Because as good as the forward group looks on paper, right, like as sexy as the names are when you when you write them down on a whiteboard and think like, and that'll work. Like at the end of the day, they're probably league average, right? They, they don't have enough top-end wing skill, in my view, to justify moving Miller to center. I, I just don't think they're set enough in that spot, right? I mean, what's one of the issues playing Miller with Pearson and Besser? Well, Pearson's not really a top-line forward, and Besser is, but he hasn't been playing in a while. And the risk of infection to his wrist has been so significant that he hasn't even been able to work out, right? Like he hasn't been able to sweat, <laughs> quite literally, right? Like he's had to be avoiding situations that would cause him to sweat over the course of the past two weeks as he's healed up here. Um, are we going to get his best performance in his first game back? Feels like a stretch, right? Feels like he might need some time. So putting all those eggs in that basket feels very risky to me. But, but if the message is, you know, we're, we're not the team we've played like, uh, I can understand it. I just, 
you know, tactically, I wonder if it's good strategy, bad tactics. Uh, and the Canucks right now need wins, need to bank <laughs> points. Yes. And so I worry, I worry about that overall. Well, and again, you just look at it. Okay, let's even say, because I, I, I share your concerns about Besser, right? And what form is he going to be in right off the right off the bat? I, I share concerns about, you know, the overall speed uh, of that top line. But even let's say Besser plays himself into shape pretty quickly, starts playing well. Okay, Miller and Besser, that's great. I'm not sold at all on Tanner Pearson there right now. So you've got Miller playing with a guy in Pearson who, you know, has not shown that he deserves top six uh, minutes right now. And then you've also got Horvat playing with Vasily Podkolzin, who has really struggled offensively. He was just a healthy scratch. So there's a major question mark there. And I just feel like, yeah, Miller is get, is playing his best hockey with Horvat. But are you also going to get the – you're probably going to get the best out of Horvat alongside JT Miller as well. I think they're bringing out the best of each other at 5-on-5, and I think that gives you the best chance of actually having two really, really good scoring lines. If you pair those guys up and then you let Pedersen do his thing, which to be fair is really clicking well right now with Andre Kuzmenko and Ilya Mikheyev, I think you're kind of putting both Miller and Horvat in a tough situation with these lines. I understand the theory of all these lines, but just with the extra information we've got – uh, since training camp, it, it worries me a little bit, and I wonder if it's going to damper both Miller and Horvat when you really need to have those guys going uh, to give you something behind Pedersen on a consistent basis. Now, the other factor is, right, with Besser, at least a practice today, skating with Miller uh, and Pearson. Of course, the line in uh, Nashville, it was Horvat with Miller and Hoaglander. Hoaglander was one of the extras, so he seems poised to go from the press box against Anaheim to the first line against Nashville, back to the press box uh, against Ottawa, and the, well, the yo-yo effect of Hoaglander continues. Yeah, it's and it's not just it's not just he has different line mates, right? It's like one day he's fourth line, one day he's third line, one day he's second line, one day he's scratched, one day he's first line, one day he's fourth line, then he's scratched again. You know, it's just it's all over the map. It's all over the map for a 21-year-old who had 46 points or, yeah, 45 points in like 120 games in the NHL at the ages of 19 and 20 going into this season. And now, you know, how, do you, how are you supposed to find any consistency? And, and what's been the repeated thing? So long as he's producing, right, he's got a place in the lineup. Well, mm-hmm. he picked up an assist. He did good work on the, their second goal. Yeah, Saros, the rebound was not pretty, but he, he did good work. And... He scratched. So I don't understand it. I think this is becoming rather ridiculous, indefensible, uh, inexcusable. I just don't think it makes sense for a player as good and as young as Niels Hoaglander to have a development path this chaotic, this unpredictable, um, for especially when you're 3-6-3, three, and three, right? <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like scratching him's working. Right? It's not like this is working. Yeah. And especially when this front office has built, you know, a crucial part of their plan being their ability to outdevelop some of the other teams around the league. Right? I mean, that just does not square. What we're seeing with Rathbone, Pod Colson and Hoaglander does not square with what this organization has said they will accomplish. And and that's a problem for me. Well, and with Hoaglander, as you said, it's not just that they're losing, but it's also there's clearly players you could make the case to other players to take out of the lineup right like it's not like well who everyone's playing so well we can't find room for Niels Hoaglander I mean there's other guys like Tanner Pearson I think you could easily make the case uh that Hoaglander should be in the lineup over him right now and uh, as you said it's just 
it'd be one thing if it was consistent healthy scratches or even one thing if he'd been sent down to Abbotsford. But the the whiplash, and again, just in the last three games of healthy scratch, first line, now poised to be a healthy scratch tomorrow, it's uh, it's hard to wrap my head around. Now, you mentioned Jack Rathbone as well, so let's look at the defensive pairings here. No, change. no changes. No change. <laughs> so unlike the big shuffle at the forward, no change on the blue line. Hugh Shen, OEL Bear, Stillman Myers, Rathbone, and Burroughs uh, skating as a pair as well. Now, I know you've, you've uh, referenced Riley Stillman a little bit, taking a lot of heat from Canucks fans, including in the inbox right now. Do you want to say your piece about Riley Stillman? Well, I, he hasn't played well the last two games. The, people aren't wrong about that. It's just that everyone wants to pin the entirety of a loss and five goals against on Stillman making a few bad reads. And the fact is, is that if you're watching this team play, you're seeing a lot of bad reads on a nightly basis from a lot of different players. So, uh, you know, would I have him in lineup over Kyle Burroughs in the wake of the Nashville game on Tuesday against the Ottawa Senators? No, probably not. But do I still think that Stillman can be a useful bottom six piece for this team? Yes, I do. Uh, And I think the idea of making an individual scapegoat considering the way that this team is played, considering the habits and structural deficiencies we see every night, is preposterous. Like, I really think that's ridiculous. I don't think it's about... That's it. That's that's my take. Look, he should... If anyone is sitting there thinking, like, he's been the difference between, (laughs) you know, this team being really good and this team having the record that it currently does, yeah, that, that is ridiculous. I, I I don't I don't understand. Or if he's resp- like he's solely responsible for the tying goal sure. against the Predators. Like it's a blown assignment, but it's not the only one on that sequence. I don't understand the case for keeping him in the lineup right now. That's the confusing thing, right? And that's where you know, look, you're right. He's not he shouldn't be the scapegoat. He shouldn't be the guy that everyone decides is the problem, right? Because there's lots of problems. We can all understand that, but I think it's and again, it's the it's the dichotomy between what we're seeing with, you know, Niels Hoaglander who can't get in the lineup to stick around despite doing some pretty good things, and Riley Stillman. And it's, well, why does he have a guaranteed spot in the lineup? That's the ultimate question. I think that's where the frustration comes, especially when you have a young player like Jack Rathbone. Even if you're not worried about the development of Rathbone, you have a Kyle Burrows, right, who's tough, gives you the maximum effort all the time, can move the puck all right. Like, you have what I would say is pretty clearly – a better option available to you no matter what your strategy is whether it's about developing young players whether it's about trying to win as much as you can you've got guys there that tick both of those boxes better than Riley Stillman and that's not to say you know ah send him to Abbotsford he should never play for this team again look yeah he should be around they're gonna have injuries he can step into the lineup but I just I don't know what the logic of keeping him in it feels like well, we traded a we 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 got this guy in a pick that uh, or in a trade that we sent out a second round pick for, so we're going to give him every shot to prove that he's worth it. But right now, he's not playing well enough to be in the lineup. That that's where the confusion lies for me, Drancer. Yeah, I don't think that's unreasonable. But again, you know, I, I think you're at a point where finding opportunities for guys under the age of twenty five, you know, if it's not at a premium already, it, it, we're very close to reaching that tipping point, right? Mm. And, you know, for me, uh, what does that look like? Well, it looks like living with mistakes sometimes, particularly when you're trying to develop a defensive defenseman, right? Um, I'd, I'd rather see that when you're 3-6-3 three, and three, than, you know, the opposite, than sort of a, a veteran guy who struggles and never comes out of the lineup 
at all or, or as ever even an option to take out a lineup. So, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm looking at this Canucks defense core. I'm finding it wanting for a lot of reasons. And, you know, all of a sudden there's one sort of uh, rallying cry goat <laughs> a scapegoat for the fan base yeah. and it just you the, know i find it confusing the old meaning of goat not the new meaning of uh, of goat yeah um now <laughs> not the not the uh g-o-a-t yes no now this text came in and it uh it was something i noticed as well uh reading your tweets uh from practice that burrows was doing pk work on a pair with myers and this texture asks unsigned uh so is there a chance that burrows is in fact in over Stillman tomorrow based on that. What was your read, well, if any, on that situation, Drance? Hard to know. I wonder if they wanted a lefty. Like, if you've got eight defensemen, eight defensemen who are cleared for contact, and you're going to run PK work, right? You're going to set it up to approximate the power plays you're probably going to face, right? So if the Ottawa Senators are using Thomas Shabbat mm. up top... Uh, and their second pair lefty is Brandstrom, and they're both lefties uh, on both power play units, wouldn't you use your two lefty depth guys who don't factor in your PK plans to do that and just run out a, an extra on the third PK pair, uh, especially because the third PK pair is unlikely to see the ice, <laughs> right? Like, you, you know, you use three <laughs> sets of forwards on the PK, but only two sets of defensemen unless one of those sets of defensemen uh, take a penalty. So... Um, you know, realistically, this team's probably going to use five penalty-killing defensemen anyway in any given game, and I, I, I don't know how much it means. I don't read anything into it because I wonder if they were just setting it yeah. up to approximate what they'll see uh, against opposition penalty kills uh, b- before their next practice on Friday. Yeah, it caught my attention as well, but that I mean that explanation makes sense. And it, look, I think if Burroughs was going, if they were planning to play Burroughs, they would have played him in the top three normal pairings at five on five at practice right so I mean we'll see you never know like Boudreaux I know even made a point of saying well we haven't set our lineup for tomorrow so other things could happen between now and when they take the ice against Ottawa tomorrow but it's at least something uh, worth keeping an eye on Uh, this text comes in from Ella if everyone is making bad reads does this team lack basic hockey sense well I, that's that's certainly uh, that's certainly one way of looking at it. at least defensive IQ. I think would be it would be fair to say is uh, yeah. There's not a surplus. IQ. Not a surplus. Two-way of IQ. It. No, there's not a surplus of it, and it's why Luke Shen stands out in his own zone. Right. It's why Ethan Bear stands out in transition. Right. Um, you know those are those are good players. I like both players. I think they can both play a support supporting role on teams that could be contending teams. But if they stand out for those aspects of their game says a lot about the quality of your club, right? Like that. It just does. I'm sorry. It just does. Well, and I think even Ethan bear who, you know, if you were to talk, I'm not say Ethan. No, no, no. Sorry. I was, but I want to build on something that, okay. Okay, cool. Like if, what would the kind of general top line scouting report on Ethan bear have been coming into this season? Like talented puck mover, you know, not necessarily a stalwart defensive player. I think that's fair to say, right? That's what that would have been kind of a gloss on Ethan bear. And he's instantly first choice on the penalty kill. First choice, and deservedly so, on the penalty kill for this team, Drancer. Like, no question about it. He's the guy you want out there when you're killing penalties uh, because of what else is available to the, to the coaching staff right now. Well, yeah, and, and I sort of wonder, too, um, as, as the lack of structure and details uh, are on the tip of minds within the halls of power off of Griffith's way is the fact that Ethan bear has come from a really structured organization and immediately has these details 
right, and some of their players don't, is that seen as sort of further proof of concept that this team's not going to be able to level up without, you know, getting someone who can instill that, right? Is that, is that part of the thought process here? And that, um, we'll talk about it a little bit more in the show. we got a break relatively quickly here. Gemma Karsten-Smith is going to join uh, us on the other side, talk about uh, some of the most interesting clips that she noticed and wants to uh, chat with us about later uh, throughout the last week for the Canucks. But, yeah, I mean, I was uh, reading your latest piece at The Athletic Drancer, and one of the things that came up again was this kind of ongoing structure versus personnel debate that's been played out a little bit in the public eye I'm sure certainly behind the scenes as well you know between management and the coaching staff and it seems like at least based on some of the reporting you were doing and that it was included in your piece at The Athletic that management is still pretty firmly on the side of yes this defense needs a talent infusion but we're also not getting as much of them as, as we could right now because of the structure of the team or lack of structure the team is playing with. Yeah, it's certainly a fault line, uh, an evaluative fault line, uh, which I think is being discussed, debated, wondered about. And, um, you know, I, I, don't, not, I don't think that. I know that. I can tell you that, mm-hmm. um, I, which I don't think implies much positive about how Boudreaux's work has been regarded to this point, right? Like, without question. And yet, you know, I, I know no one will be surprised to hear that, in my view, you know, Boudreaux knows how to win games at the NHL level. And I think the issues are more personnel-based. But uh, I don't think that's a fait accompli slam dunk. I don't know that uh, Canucks management would be in wholehearted agreement with me. I-, I think there's a fair bit of concern about the way the team plays and how that makes some of the defensemen in particular look as a result of this club's, you know, losing habits, frankly. It's Canucks talk here. Sportsnet 650. 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Last hour of the show coming up. Uh, our pal Gemma Carson Smith from the Canadian Press will join us to kick things off. That is next here on Canucks Talk. Welcome back to Canucks Talk, second hour of the show today. Happy Monday to everyone. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Drancer's on the road in Ottawa. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 Five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, you can get your thoughts in. Gemma Carson-Smith from the Canadian Press is going to join us in just a minute here. And, in fact, Gemma is on the le- line right now, so we'll bring her into the conversation. Uh, Gemma, thanks, as always, for doing this. How are you? I'm all right, friends. How are you? We're doing well. Now, <laughs> but before we get – Drance is on the road. I'm, I'm here in Vancouver. Before we get into uh, the meat of our conversation, uh, you got to cover a playoff game in Vancouver yesterday, Gemma. How, how, fun, how, how much fun was that? Okay, so I've been on this job for like five years now, uh, and it was the first playoff game I've covered in Vancouver. Unreal. Do you know how exciting that was? I can Yikes. imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> and I know fans were really excited, too. 30,000 people. That's a lot of people. It was very exciting. And to see the Lions win, uh, it's 
it's great for them. It's great to see what's happened with this team over the last year or so, um, both on and off the field. There's a real excitement about them, and uh, I'm uh, I'm 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 very happy to see that they are uh, getting a little bit of success here. Uh, for your first playoff game to cover here in Vancouver, hopefully not the last. Hopefully, it's a more of an a one every five year uh, ratio we can get going uh, for you at your at your job at the Canadian Press. So, like we did last week, we debuted the segment. We're going to run through some of the most interesting sound bites and clips from the Canucks players, coaches, uh, whatever the case may be, over the last week. We'll get you to just give us a little bit of a tee up. Uh, before we hear uh, from each of them, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll toss them back and forth a little bit. Uh, first up, I understand is the coach Bruce Boudreau. Why don't you explain to us uh, what we're going to hear and and why you decided to choose this club? Totally. So Saturday marked the fifth time this season that the Canucks have given up a multi-goal lead in a loss. They've only played twelve games. Mm-hmm. That's not a great percentage. I'm not good at math, but I can tell you. Not a great percentage. Boudreaux <laughs> was asked afterwards about why this keeps happening to his team, and uh, he once again suggested that his group might be afraid of winning. So here's the coach trying to explain a little bit about what that phrase means. And maybe that's not a good phrase, afraid of winning. I mean, that's uh, – uh, but, you know, we're telling them in the dressing room that we want them to go after that next goal, get that next goal, push, and we sort of sit back a little bit too much, and, uh, and, and then it gets too late. Gemma, so the thing that's really striking to me about so many Canucks availabilities right now is how much they sound like something you might hear from your therapist, right? You know what I mean? Like, are you are you, are you your therapist saying, do you think you're scared of success? Are you sabotaging yourself? And then you have the head coach saying uh, the team might be scared of winning. What do you make of it? I legitimately think that this team needs a good therapist. Um, <laughs> I think that there are definitely some um, mental blocks going on here. And, uh, man, the thing that struck me about this clip is just the frustration in Boudreaux's voice. And, like, we, I've said before that he looks and sounds weary, but just the frustration. Because he says, we keep talking to them about this. We keep saying, keep pushing for that next goal. And it's, it's the same things again and again and again. And there's just... They cannot find the answer. So to see that is uh, is pretty rough. I can't, to see them give up multi-goal leads in five losses is just astounding. Um, I, it was something that uh, um, even the Preds uh, commented on after the game, Matthias Lacombe saying that uh, uh, once they got the first goal, they knew that they had uh, mentally chipped into the Canucks. So it's, it's pretty brutal, and uh, I think that mentality is, is something that needs to be addressed here. Come on, you play. Come on, you. Come on, you play, and you get. Sorry about that. Go ahead, Drance. <laughs> Sorry, was that Echo? I don't know what that was. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure either, but uh, we'll get we'll get it straightened out. Go ahead, Drance. All right, sounds good. No, just they're out of answers. But are there answers to be found with this current group, Gemma? That's a great question. I, I mean, there's only so much blendering of the lineup that you can do before you're just straight up looking for new pieces, right? And, and they have brought in some new pieces. We've seen Stednika and Bear uh, slot into the lineup, drive slot into the lineup over the last uh, couple weeks here. But we're not seeing a whole lot of different results. It's the same problems again and again and again. So maybe it is time to start looking at uh, the the uh, backbone of this team, the, what what kind of systems they're using, and, and maybe attack those because obviously what uh, what was put in place originally is uh, not exactly working for this group. 
Well, you said backbone of this team and then brought up both uh, players and systems. So I, I got to ask you, because we've been talking about it a lot, is it personnel or is it structure in your view? I think it's honestly a little bit of both. I think that... Um, <laughs> some column A, structure, some column B? <laughs> yeah, a little bit column A, a little bit column B. Probably some column C in there too. There's uh, some personalities that... Uh, anyway, um, but I think that it's a very similar structure to what we saw last year. And that worked with a lot of these same personnel. So uh, you would think that it would continue working. Again, I have no answers. Bruce has no answers. No one has any answers about what on earth is going on here. But um, I think that the personnel that you, you have are very obviously not working. Uh, This mix is not right. I think that we've seen that, um, Again and again, and we've heard it in just the way that the team talks about each other, uh, about the way the coach talks about the team, about the way management talks about the team. They, they want to get this going in the right direction, but it's just not working, and you got to think that uh, the mix of players has to have something to do with that. Uh, one player that might change the mix if uh, he can get into the lineup tomorrow night, Brock Besser, who's been out for a while. He skated with the team today, so we'll see what his status is uh, ahead of tomorrow's game against the Senators. I know the next clip you want to talk about, Gemma, is from Brock Besser. Yeah, so Besser hasn't played since uh, that loss to the Sabres on, the, on October 22nd, but on Friday we uh, officially found out why. He told reporters there had been some uh, complications with that scar that was left over from his hand surgery in September. And uh, let's listen to Brock talk about what happened. And when you play and it gets wet and sweaty, uh, you know, the chance that could happen. And fortunately it happened. And, um, you know, you can get an infection if you keep playing with it and stuff. And then, you know, that would be way worse. So um, obviously we had to take care of it and, and uh, get it healed up. Can this guy catch a break, Gemma? That like, is, not, the that injury is, and then the infection after it, or the risk of infection after it. It's insane. Is he the unluckiest man in hockey? Because <laughs> I'm fairly certain he is. The string of events that has just plagued Brock Besser since he entered the league, starting with like the freak accident with the door and breaking his back. Like, poor Brock Besser. I, we don't cheer for teams. We cheer for players. And I... I just want to see this guy get a little bit of a, a break here because uh, it's just been one one awful thing after another for poor Brock. He, uh, he actually was asked today in the room, is this one of the weirdest hockey injuries you've ever had? And he said, well, the door thing, that was pretty weird too. <laughs> that legitimately occurred about an hour ago, uh, two rooms adjacent to where I'm sitting now in the Canucks locker room. So you're right. And this is also, I've talked a lot about how I don't consider Brock Besser injury prone because all of these accidents seem so vastly unrelated to one another. And I sort of think of injury prone as a guy who's got like a wonky knee or like something repetitive that, that keeps occurring to them. Um, what's your take? Is, is Brock Besser injury prone, Gemma, or is he more like accident prone? Well, as someone who is accident prone, I have broken my nose three times. Um, I will just say that he is accident prone and not injury prone, and there's a very important difference. Um, one is your fault, and one is absolutely not. It is the rest of the world's fault, and the world is out to get you. So I think that's what's happening with poor Brock and me. Um, but, man, I, I just want to see this kid catch a break. He was so hopeful that he'd get to play on Saturday night, but he didn't. So I'm really hoping that he gets his slot back into the lineup against his friends tomorrow. What's... Uh... You know, the interesting thing, though, is because, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the show, Gemma, Drance and I, like, you know, he wasn't able to really sweat. So that, I mean, kind of has to make you 
bring up some questions about where's his conditioning going to be. You know, it looks like he's going to get a shot on a top line role with Miller and Pearson, but is this going to be a situation where we might have to temper our expectations for Brock even after he gets back into the lineup? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that you definitely have to temper your expectations. Like you said, (laughs) when you're a professional athlete, sweating is important. Yes. yes. (laughs) Strangely enough. Um, So, yeah, I'm interested to see where he, like, what role he does play tomorrow. Because, like you said, um, I think fitness could be an issue. But he's a a kid who has always taken pretty good care of himself. So I'm I'm sure that it won't take long for him to get back up to speed. It's just a question of getting his legs back under him and knocking that rust off. Once he does get back up to kind of full speed, what what do you think the kind of biggest thing that he can bring on the ice to help this team is right now? Man, he needs to score. (laughs) Yeah. For for someone who said I'm definitely gonna get thirty goals this year, we're now twelve games into the season and he has a goose egg, um, that's bad. So I, I wanna see him out there shooting. We weren't seeing him shoot a lot uh to start off the season. And he's he's a volume shooter. He uh he's someone who takes lots of shots and, and some of those get through, so that's what we need to see from Brock is uh getting pucks on net. Always, always got to get pucks on net, Gemma. We're talking and to in deep. Yes, and in deep. Don't either. forget to and get in them deep. in deep, too. One of the two. One of the two. Uh, we're talking to Gemma Carson-Smith from the Canadian Press here. It's Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Okay, so one of the biggest events around the Canucks this week wasn't necessarily on the ice, but it was the celebration of Kevin Bieksa. And just in terms of content, as he so often is, it was uh, it was a goldmine for us uh, from Kevin Bieksa. We've all had a chance to listen to you know what he had to say uh, in the locker room and about about the culture during his time of the te- uh, with the team, but uh, I'll let you set up the the specific clip that you chose to isolate from BX as well. Yeah, like you said, it really was the BX show, and uh, there were lots of lights and uh, shiny objects. Um, so he did the morning skate with the team and gave them a little pregame pep talk, and he sat down and chatted with us media folks for about 20 minutes or so, which is pretty impressive. Um, one thing that he really said during that 20 minutes that stuck out with me was about the culture in that locker room. Uh, so let's hear more from Bex on that. And the culture was so special because there was a lot of us that were uber competitive with each other. We all wanted to be better than the other person. We all battled and we all tried to perfect our craft, whether it was tipping pucks in front of that. This is it's almost verbatim what I told these guys this morning, but it was just about having pride in what you do, being competitive about it and pushing each other. What stands out to you most about what Bieksa had to say there, Gemma? I thought it was really interesting how he said he was more proud of the culture that he and his teammates created than he was of going to the finals or winning back-to-back President's Cups. That's big for, for a guy who's, who's uh, become a bit of a folk hero in the city. Um, and to talk about being competitive with each other, but also talk about uh, how important it was to him to be a good teammate, I thought that was an interesting contrast because I think with some guys on this in this group, we see the good teammate part, and with some guys, we see the ultra-competitive part, but I don't know that we're seeing a lot of players where that meld both of those characteristics, and I'm wondering if uh, maybe that's part of what's missing. Mm, that's an interesting framing. So one one thing I liked about BX's commentary, by the way, and especially the locker room clip that went viral, and I like that you got him reacting to to it after the fact to the media, because while he was a little bit sheepish, like this is almost verbatim what I said, he, he seemed really sheepish about it on Saturday night on Hockey Night in Canada, making fun of himself for, uh, for being permitted to go into the locker room and ramble on about <laughs> culture when, you know, I, I thought that was pretty good oratory. 
Um, did you catch Boudreaux's commentary after the game as well on the idea of getting along the way he reacted to BX's commentary? For sure. And I thought that that was really telling because uh, what we've seen of Boudreaux, uh, he's talked about how guys on the team uh, are friends. And then he, he with, with uh, BX, he talked about what a good teammate he was and, and the kind of culture that he created. And so I, I think that those are two kind of juxtaposing ideas. Like you don't need to be friends. You don't have to be besties with, with your line mates. You, you have to respect them and, and you got to work hard for them and with them. And I, uh, I don't know if that's uh, what's happening with this team so, right now. And, and what did you think about his declaration that when we understand that it's team first and the individual stuff doesn't matter, then we'll be a great team? I, I thought that was loaded, even though he cautioned us that, you know, I'm not saying we don't have this. It, it felt like a loaded commentary on uh, some of what he maybe sees stacked against him in, in navigating things here. Absolutely. You don't say when in that sentence if you don't mean that you, it, everything's hunky-dory right now. Um, so I think when is the operative word, I think that, uh, it's something that he sees the team needing to work on and that, uh, it absolutely is something that the team needs to work on. We've seen, uh, the lack of team first mentality with this group. Uh, we've seen some, some selfish play and some guys who are, uh, maybe not working for, for the group as a whole. We've heard Alvin and we've heard Bruce and we've heard guys in the locker room talk about the need to, to, uh, skate for that guy next to you and to uh, be a team first mentality and, and best players need to be the best players for the team. Uh, we don't keep hearing those things if it's not an ongoing issue. Gemma, one of the things that I find fascinating about trying to kind of fit the idea of culture and, you know, are they together? Do they, do they work for each other? All of that into my evaluation of this team is, you know, for a long time I've also believed that, winning helps create good cultures, right? Because everything's just easier. Everything's more fun if you're winning. So yeah, lots of times bad teams are going to have bad cultures because everyone's miserable and everyone, no one's having fun because they're losing all the time. It, do you still see the uh, possibility here to kind of turn the culture around with this mix? Like if they did get on a roll, would that help fix the culture? Or are there kind of deeper underlying issues uh, in your eyes here that, as you say, maybe it, it eventually just – the, the group that's here has to be changed for the culture to improve. So let's put it this way. If winning doesn't fix everything, it definitely makes people happier about working on everything. So uh, it might, culture might be a longstanding issue that needs to be addressed going forward, but winning certainly helps. Uh, we saw that in, in the, uh, uh, when they when they were on the, the little roll with the the wins last week, we just everyone was so much more pleasant to talk to, <laughs> um, which is such a selfish thing for me to say, but uh, it was also true. Guys were smiling and having fun and joking and and joking with each other, not just with us. And we don't see a lot of that um, after these losses and strings of losses and and giving up multi goal leads. So um, winning might not solve it. But it definitely puts a puts a puts some lipstick on the pig. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, final couple of minutes here with Jeff Carson Smith from the Canadian Press. Last clip of the day again uh, from the head coach Bruce Boudreaux, Gemma. Yeah, it was really on theme this week. Um, every, <laughs> everyone's name started with B. Um, I, I love I love alliteration, apparently. Um, so let's look ahead a little here to the road trip that the teams uh, now embarked on. Boudreaux was asked on Saturday night what this swing means, uh, given the all-important uh, marker of American, American Thanksgiving that's just around the corner. And here's what he had to say. 
Well, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, it doesn't matter. It's it's a it's a big thing to get back in the hunt. That's all I'm worried about. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, if you come back over 500 on this road trip, then all of a sudden you you got some home games. But we've still got to play at home, Vegas, Colorado. It's it's not an easy month. Jim, I mean, what else is there to say except it's November 7th and we're already talking about, you know, the next five games, pivotal in the playoff chances for the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, but we were also we also saw a uh, team meeting closed doors from, like, game three. <laughs> three games So, in. like, this, yeah. is, this is not a normal season. This is not a normal team. Everything is weird, and we just have to go with it. I, I, it makes our lives a little bit more difficult. But, yes, here we are. November 7th, talking about pivotal five-game series. But it's not an easy road trip. There are two back-to-backs. They're facing some teams that are tearing it up right now. Boston's not going to be easy. Buffalo's already decimated them. So, and Toronto is Toronto. Uh, so whatever that means. Um, <laughs> this is not it's hard to know on any given night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think Toronto knows what Toronto <laughs> is on any given night. And, that, and that's another culture issue to talk about on another show. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's not an easy road trip. This is not going to... Uh, but to want to come out of it uh, above 500 is great. I just don't know if that's a realistic expectation. Well, also, I mean, to get over real 500, as they have only three wins in 12 games, right? Um, yeah. Would five even do it? Five would have them at eight in 17. So they'd get, they could get to real NHL 500, but what do you have to do? You have to go, what, three, one, and one? Three, one, and one would do it? No, it wouldn't. So you need to win four. Four, one, and one would get you there. So, and, I mean, that's and, a tall order here, especially considering – yeah, sorry. No. Well, Boudreaux, Boudreaux went on in that, in that clip um, to say that they want to be above 500, real 500, by the end of the month. And you look at their schedule when they come back. They face L.A., they face Colorado, yeah. they face Vegas. Like, uh, L.A. is – we'll see. Uh, Colorado is not going to be easy. I know that they haven't been great so far this season, but, like, it's still – the Stanley Cup champions. Vegas is Vegas. Like none of those are going to be easy matchups. So you want to be over 500. That's great. But remember when Bruce first came in and he said, we need to win a period. I think we should probably start winning third periods and uh, move from there. <laughs> the, uh, the other thing to note, Gemma, and I'm curious to get your take on this is, you know, this team struggled to hold thir- through third period leads. And it's not just that this is a five game trip. It's a five game trip unfolding over eight days. You noted the back to backs, but it's also a th- so it's a back to back set two days off and then a three and four. And the cumulative sort of total of that is, you know, you fly across the country and then you play, um, you know, five and five and eight. Um, not not exactly easy, uh, especially for a team that struggled later on in games. Uh, are you concerned at all? about whether or not those third period collapses are due to fitness and does that potentially pose some difficulty for this team given the way that this road trip shakes out? I think if you're not concerned that the third period matchups are due to fitness, you're probably not watching the games very closely. Um, You just watch the way that these guys are playing. They look gassed. Um, Yes, we've talked about them being mentally afraid to win and all those these things and how I said that they need a a good therapist, don't we all? Um, But it's definitely a fitness issue as well. So there's a lot of factors at play here, and fitness is definitely one of them. It's going to be a – this is going to be a slog. The next eight days are going to be a slog for this team, and I'm I'm going to be I, – I hope I'm proven wrong that they come back over 500 because they'll be much easier to talk to, but uh, I don't know if it's going to happen. 
Gemma, always really appreciate it. Appreciate the insight. Uh, enjoy your week. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, gentlemen. Have a good one. That is Gemma, Thanks, Gemma. Gemma Carson-Smith covering the Canucks uh, and the Lions, for that matter, for the Canadian press. And uh, never a good thing when, like, the Canucks scouting report also sounds like what people would say about me. Like, needs therapy and needs to work on his fitness. <laughs> that's, that's not good. That's not a good spot for a professional hockey team to be in, Drance. No, no. I mean, this is uh, this is a tough stretch, and, and it's going to be a telling one. You know, this is the problem with putting yourself behind the eight ball is you don't get the benefit of the doubt. You don't have margin for error. This team clearly doesn't, right? 100-point pace the rest of the way gets you to 94 points, which still might not be good enough. That's the math. Um, it's not easy. Like, this is where they are. There are no excuses now. It is do or do not. And if it's do not, then obviously – Obviously, especially as this is the third consecutive year that we've been having these exact same conversations. Obviously, change is going to need to happen. There's no question either that in management's view, it will happen if this club doesn't get on track in a hurry. Well, not just that. We're having the same conversations about, you know, can they dig themselves out of a hole that they've dug really, really early, a big hole that they've dug really, really early, but the same conversations about the culture and is the mix right? Do, do they need a shakeup? You know, has, it, we've already done the coaching change once, right? That didn't solve the problem. So at a certain point, I think these questions are going are gonna to become inescapable. You know, I guess this is kind of the last, last, really, we mean it, last chance for this group to turn it around uh, now. But as you said, it's going to be a very, very difficult road trip for them to start answering these questions if they are able to do so. <laughs> Let's uh, let's stop calling this a results-based league if you get this many chances. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, it's been a few. It's been a few oh. at this point. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll take some of your thoughts, questions, uh, whatever you want to get off your chest. Hit us up, 650-650 plus. Here from Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux, who spoke after practice today, looking ahead to tomorrow's game against the Ottawa Senators. Lots more on the way. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. <laughs> Final segment of Canucks Talk here. Day off Monday, practice day anyways Monday for the Vancouver Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Jantz with you for the last segment. You can always get your thoughts in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Of course, I'm live in the Kintec Footwear Studio. Drancer is on the road in Ottawa, in Canada, uh, where the Ottawa Senators play, where the Canucks practice today, as mentioned, Bruce Boudreaux with a quick update to the media after practice. Let's hear from the Canucks head coach, Bruce Boudreaux. Miller back in the middle, was that a, a tough decision for you considering? No, no, I mean, that's where he belongs. I mean, we need more balance. Um, and uh, he wanted to play back the middle. I mean, uh, initially he just wanted to get his game going and he wasn't thinking he was skating enough. Uh, well enough, but now he thinks he's where he should be, and uh, and he won't get back in the middle where I want him. Is that part of the process, though, when you do play the middle, there's more responsibilities? He, he said sometimes he gets on wing, there's a chance to maybe, you know, you don't have as many responsibilities. You definitely don't have as many responsibilities yeah. on wing. I mean, centers, I mean, you, you, you're all over the ice. You're the second man on the puck. You're down low. You're uh, side to side. You're, it's... Uh, it's why centers are so valuable on the team and why we talk about when we have our three centers going, 
were, were pretty deep at that position. What's the message to Pods getting back into my own? Well, I mean, opportunity for him to yeah, I mean, it's just, and, you know, we haven't even given the lineup for tomorrow, but, I mean, sometimes a guy needs a reset. Last year he needed it in Chicago. It took a little longer. And sometimes you watch a game and you and you say, oh, my God, am I doing that stuff too? And then you realize, I don't want to watch a game anymore, so I'm going to go. So, I mean, hey, you hate doing it to young guys, but sometimes they're the ones that learn the most. It's never an effort thing with him, though, is it? No, no, Pods' effort and his care, his care and his, his effort is always there. You'll never have to worry about that. What's um, the update? Anything on Brock Besser? I don't know. He's practicing today. I guess we'll see. It's day to day until he gets the clearance uh, for full play. Do you feel like a chess master trying to move your pieces around here, Bruce? What you have, the you know, options that you do have. I mean, you have so many, but you're trying to get some, mm-hmm. get some traction here. To yeah, like I mean, the, you remember, right? the the big traction, uh, the big thing is you, you you're pretty solidified in Petey's line. You know, I mean, we went back to the successful line if Besser plays with him and Pearson, seeing that. Bo played with Garland last year and a lot with Pods, and he can talk to him. So, I mean, uh, that's fine. It's And then you get your fourth line is pretty new, and we'll figure it all out. And we've got 14 forwards. I mean, uh, unfortunately, two of them have to sit. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux talking after practice today, and not the longest availability uh, from Boudreaux these days to answer. But it, some it's because it, I was talking to Luke Shen in the room. <laughs> I so. was going to say you didn't get so your, I didn't reel off my six in a row. You're de facto so one on one when you're on the road and there's not a ton of other people there. <laughs> I was expecting like an eight minute back and forth between Drance and Bruce Boudreaux there. Uh, but uh, maybe you'll get that on game day. I was going to say maybe we'll get that another time uh, on the road here, but. You know, short, but I actually thought there was a lot of really interesting uh, commentary from Bruce Boudreau in there, starting with um, his thoughts on moving Miller back to center and just staying straight up. Yeah, that's where I've always wanted him. You know, he wasn't necessarily skating at his best early in the season, and that necessitated a move away from center, but kind of reiterating what has been the Canucks' position since the major changes just under a year ago that management sees Miller as a center Boudreaux sees Miller as a center and as we heard from Boudreaux in that clip Miller wants to be back at center uh, as well now that he feels he has his legs back under him yeah we'll see I mean you know uh, my view of it is that Miller's always been a really high-end two-way piece on the wing and you know um, a, a still productive offensive piece like a really good player don't get me wrong he's excellent no matter where you play him but I just like him more uh, because of the way that he his instinct to maintain possession at all moments is especially valuable on the wing because most wingers don't play like that, right? Whereas, you know, the downsides of his game, occasional puck management errors, right? Um, you know, d- defensive play is strong on the wing but less strong at center. Like, the, the edges of his game are more pronounced for me when he's at center. Now, his upside is also higher, I think, offensively. We saw that last year. But, uh, but I think his overall game just plays better on the wing, and he's a rarer piece on the wing for me than he is in the middle. And, that, and that's sort of always been why, even when he was you know on that tear last season, I was pretty inflexible in my <laughs> commentary that I liked him better on the wing. Uh, you know that, that remains the case. Uh, we'll see. Like That line needs to cook right away. This team cannot have that line looking the way it did to start the season. Um, they can't afford it. These games matter too much. 
And so it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out against an Ottawa Senators team that five on five anyway, like can play like this Ottawa Senators team is what I wish I was telling Canucks fans their team is Mm. right. Like if you go look at the goal differential, if you go look at their underlying profile, right, they've actually been pretty decent. Right. I mean, they, they haven't been great, but they've been pretty decent, you know, in terms of um, in terms of five on five, like, you know, they're well above 50 percent score adjusted. Vancouver tends to be 47 and a half, 48 and a half. Right. The, n- not nearly as good, um, despite the fact that they've had bounces go against them. If you go look at Ottawa's uh, goal differential, they're even like they're even they've only allowed 38 goals in 11 games. Whereas Vancouver's at 48. That's an additional 10. All of them on the PK. No, I'm kidding, but, <laughs> but probably not, right? I mean, you know, they're, they haven't clicked. The Senators haven't clicked yet, but they lo- have the look of a team where it's just a matter of time. Like, they're not going to finish. It, they, I'm not saying they're, they're going like, to charge up the standings and make the playoffs. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, there's still some things that I am uh, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about in, in terms of their overall game. Um, but... I see enough there that I think they've been underrated in terms of their results. They are more formidable than their results indicate, and that makes them dangerous for a Canucks team that, you know, like I I genuinely think Vancouver has better high-end pieces, but, you know, top to bottom, um, I I think these are pretty closely matched teams like in true on a true talent basis I see these both as like in that 87 to 93 point range at this juncture um one thing to note though one thing to note this week anyway the games this week Montreal Ottawa Toronto yeah all three of those teams are less than super fast from the back end out and we know what that means, right? That means that the games are likely to look a little bit more like that Nashville game and a lot less like the New Jersey Devils game, which is good for Vancouver, right? The back end of the trip, once you face Boston and Buffalo, those are more track meet teams. Those are the types of teams that can often expose the way that this team plays, the way that this team gets moving north-south. But the first three opponents are matchups where none of those teams profile as the sorts of teams that really make this Canucks team, you know, um, really make it a tough night for this Canucks team. And so that's good. If you're looking to get off to a good start, like I really think this next back-to-back, this this Tuesday-Wednesday set against Ottawa and, and Montreal, it's tougher than it looks on paper because I think Ottawa's way better than their record. And Montreal, you're, at the end of the day, you're still playing a road back-to-back even if it's just a bus ride away, right? Like it's still a tough 100%. game in Montreal, especially with the way that that group works for Marty St. Louis. So I think these games are harder than they look on paper and so essential. If you can come out of this set with like three points, four points, something like that, I think that positions you really well to at least have an okay trip, to at least come back 500 on this trip, if not 500 overall, right? Um, If they come out of this with like one point or two points, even a split I think would be fine. But if they come out with one point in their next two, um, I think you're in a world of hurt going into hockey night. And then you've got really tough games in Boston and Buffalo. Well, and look, the game in Toronto, as much as you can point to, you know, the speed on the back end, look, they've started to turn their season around. That's still a really, a really, really tough matchup. And the back-to-back in particular, Saturday, Sunday, against against Toronto on Saturday, and then Boston on Sunday. That's a brutal couple of matchups. I mean, that's the the kind of swing where 
I don't care what how good a team you are. If you go through those two games and don't get any points, I kind of understand it, right? So for a team in the position that the Canucks are, it's extremely, extremely intimidating. And then you got Buffalo on the other side of that, which will be third and fourth nights, and we've already seen. You know, I know there's some questions about is there a little bit of smoke and mirrors uh, with the Buffalo Sabres right now and some of their underlying stats, but we've already seen what they were able to do to the Canucks once, right? We've seen how they match up with the Canucks. We've seen how they profile. I'm not saying it's an automatic loss or anything like that, but I think that's a tougher matchup for the Canucks than it is for a lot of other teams. So the final three games of this road trip are brutally, brutally difficult for the Canucks. They absolutely need to find a way if they're going to do what we've been talking about, what Quinn Hughes was talking about on the weekend and kind of use this road trip as a you know, a springboard to kind of salvaging their season. It has to start uh, in Montreal and in Ottawa tomorrow night. But I look at Ottawa and still, yeah, look, the, the defense does not look great. That's fair. And as you said, not only does it not look great, but it's also kind of the style of not looking great that most suits the Canucks. But I still mm. look at the top six, and even with Josh Norris out long term, there's a lot of guys that can do damage, right? And, you know, it's, it's Kachuk, Stutzla, Giroux, Debrinkit, Batherson. Like, that's still a lot of talent to be able to run out there in your top six. And I don't think it's the kind of talent that profiles to you know, they're, they're going to be a spoiler in the playoffs necessarily, but are they the kind of talent that can punish a disorganized defensive team, a, def- a team prone to defensive gaffes uh, when they're on the road? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a team that can punish <laughs> somebody like the Canucks. So that's the, that's the thing I'm going to be paying most attention to tomorrow is just can the Canucks do a credible job of slowing down what is still a pretty talented, pretty interesting, pretty exciting top six for Ottawa? Yeah, I'm. The, the top six loses so much of its fastball without Norris, though. Like it, it's been a little bit out of sorts, I think. Anyway, um, the Canucks are bumping into the Senators at the right time. Down Zub, down Norris uh, has left them pretty thin in a variety of areas. Areas. I agree with you. Though. Down Zub. This is this is down Zub. What a beautiful, <laughs> a beautiful two combination of words that is. I don't well, know. Why. Well, well would you have me. preferred? Would you have preferred for me to say that? They are Zub Zero. <laughs> They're Zubless. Repeat, Zubless. <laughs> the state of being without Zub <laughs> yes. is the definition yes. for Dollywall. Anyway, uh, the, the the thing, the, yeah, look, the Senators are dangerous. Their top six is, is decent. They, I like their forward depth in general. And they, pl- and they play hard. They play hard. They play physical. There's a lot of guys that are, that are tough to handle. And, and I think it's just a matter of time before a guy like Debrinket breaks out. And this Canucks team has the feel in the early going of the team that everyone who's struggling breaks out against, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, don't yes, they? Very much so. Well, and you again, know? I think one of the ongoing stories has been high-end offensive talent punishing this team, right? Like, that, that to me has been one of the major stories that every time – not every time, right, because the, the Penguins didn't do anything uh, against them. And, I mean, I'd cer- I would certainly call Philip Forsberg a high-end offense, uh, offensive talent, and they were able to mostly keep him in check uh, on Saturday. But generally speaking, when the really you know upper crust of elite offensive players in the league have had a chance to go up against the Canucks, they've found space. They've found success. They've found a way to get their points. And I think, you know, Ottawa, for whatever the faults of their roster – they have players who kind of check that box. I mean, I would even look at, you know, that game against Montreal, like they still have Cole Caulfield, right? A guy who can pick a goal out of nothing. So that's always kind of a a dangerous game in a sense uh, when you have a player who can score like that. So I agree with you. Yeah, it does feel like 
this is an Ottawa team that can do some damage uh, against the Canucks. Uh, final few you know, minutes. Go ahead. I, I, sorry, I just want to. I just want to say one thing, which is I was watching. I got. I got to Ottawa yesterday, so I had time to like really watch sports. Not Great. that I don't watch sports every day for a living, but like I, I really had a chance to watch sports, and there wasn't a lot of hockey, so I really had a chance to like watch a Raptors game tip to buzzer, which I, I haven't had a chance to do at length, partly because I'm checking in other games on League Pass. Um, you know, and, and gaming as it were. Um, but, but the, I watched the Raptors game tip to, um, tip to buzzer. And one thing that happened was that DeMar DeRozan, ex Raptor back in Toronto with the Chicago Bulls had a brutal game because the Raptors are so good defensively. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think it's an indictment. Like if, if we're talking about how a lot of star players seem to have an easy night against the Vancouver Canucks, like that's almost the meanest thing we could say. You know, um, that said, there's some really big name players that the Canucks will play over the next few games, right? Uh, whether it's any one of Ottawa's top six, whether it's Cole Caulfield, whether it's Matthews, Tage Thompson, the perfection line absent Marchand. Uh, is he back yet? No, Marchand's back. Um, Marchand's back. Okay, yeah. so then the perfection line, uh, whether whether they play together or are split, and then, you know, you come home. Oh, and you're going to have Jack Eichel. You're going to have um, Nathan McKinnon on the road, right? Like this team's going to be playing some high-level, high-octane star players, and we better not be having the same conversation in two weeks. Uh, I saw a text in the inbox like, "What's what does it have to look like before management decides that change is needed? Um, I think it looks like that. It looks like us having mm. the same conversation about sort of star players having these types of nights against the Canucks two weeks from now. Like that has to stop. It has to. It's job one, right? And look, maybe it looks like, you know, slowing the game down or making it as kind of ugly and having as little flow as possible, right? Maybe that's the formula that they need to lean into to kind of try to slow down uh, some of the high-end players. But they're, they're, the thing with the NHL right now is just there's so few safe spots, right? There's so few teams where you look at it and say, like, oh, that guy doesn't have anyone who scares me offensively. You know, there's there's really, really good, dangerous offensive players on basically every team at this point. So if you don't have some way to offer a little resistance, you're in for a lot of ugly nights, a lot of tough nights uh, when that isn't something that you have in your bag to be able to do on a regular basis. I did want to touch on quickly uh, one other thing, uh, just a bit of reporting and analysis from your latest piece, uh, observations about the Canucks that's up at The Athletic right now, just talking about uh, Bo Horvat and how his hot start to the year, you know, what that has and hasn't meant in the eyes of management and what that maybe has meant also in his, his evaluation around the league as well. I mean, Bo Horvat deserves a lot of credit for the way that he's handled this, right? I mean, so many times this can be a really tricky situation, particularly for a player as high profile as Horvat in a market as ravenous as Vancouver, right? And if he'd struggled, and frankly, that's still going to come. There's still going to be a five-game stretch where Bo Horvat doesn't score two goals, right? Like, that's going to come. It can be, you know, part of the thing is like, are, are you struggling during a contract year, Bo? Like, how, how, much does, how much does that suck, right? Like, it can be an overwhelming wall of noise in this marketplace, but Horvat's tuned that out. Right, kept his head down, just gone about performing at a very high level, exceptionally high level. Um, his his commentary has done nothing to fan the flames, mm. and that's impressed a lot of people. Uh, that's impressed a lot of people, a lot of key decision makers within the organization. It's impressed a lot of people around the league. 
And you can bet that the lethal scoring ability, not to mention the fact that he's won 60% of draws while taking 180 over the course of 12 games, has a lot of teams looking at him as, you know, I'm sure, near, if not at, the very top of their their trade boards, um, you know, as we approach the deadline. Like, he's going to be a very hot commodity in the event that he's traded. Now, you know, my sense is that at this point, his hot start's not going to cause the Canucks to suddenly make moves to close this deal. That can change in a heartbeat. I want to. I want to say yeah. that quick. I want to say that and note that prominently. Right? Um, you know, this organization and Horvat have been locked in a staring contest. We know from recent comments that the the two sides haven't necessarily been in frequent touch. Right? There's sort of been a disagreement, and and that's kind of been where where it was left. Um, you know, I think it'll take movement from one side or the other to bring about a resolution. I, I don't anticipate that Horvat's hot start has necessarily changed that calculus for either side. But I do think that his hot start has solidified his standing, right? Has solidified that should he become available on the trade market, he'll be one of the hottest commodities. And that positions the Canucks uniquely, um, you know, as, as a seller at the deadline, should this season not turn around and should this uh, negotiation between you know Horvat's representatives with with Newport Sports and the Canucks not come to an agreement on on a long-term extension for the Canucks captain so you know it's an interesting one because on on the one hand you look at it and say man how are the Canucks struggling so much I know this is me stealing your your life right. you can say Jamie will say how are the Canucks struggling so much even as their captain is making such a strong case for a big race right and it, it feels like a, like a negative spin. It's not. It's just true, right? It's 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 very Canucksy. But the other side of that is, if your captain's going to be crushing it and you're going to be struggling, in some ways that enhances your hand in terms of giving you some options, giving you a fair bit of flexibility to maybe you know sell and 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 utilize probably your most valuable single asset at the moment, short of you know the three guys. Uh, in Hughes, Pedersen, and Demko, who are who are younger, are probably your best trade asset to to maybe address some of the long term issues that remain, um, you know, simmering or, or or in full view on this Canucks roster. Well, and look, one of the questions I asked in the opening segment of the show was, let's say management does decide, as you said, to kind of lean into being bad this year a little bit, to some sort of change of direction, even if it's not the dramatic, you know, quote-unquote, capital R rebuild or anything like that. But, like, what does it actually look like changing track? And I'm, I'm not saying it would be the first move if that was to happen, but you have, as you said, a major, major trade asset who's a pending UFA, and man, it would be a really simple way to signal a change of direction. And as you said, not just to do it symbolically to signal it, but to actually meaningfully contribute to collecting those assets, collecting maybe a little bit of cap flexibility that you desperately need. It, the, the fact that that's looming on the horizon is something that could potentially happen, and Bo Horvat is out there uh, unsigned. It's going to be really, really fascinating to track over the remainder of this season because at a certain point, it almost feels like an inescapable conclusion. As much as you know, you're, you're reporting, and I completely believe this, that they would prefer to keep him in the fold. I get it. I really like Bo Horvat. But it just feels like the logic of this season of what of what he's doing, of what the team is doing, of what the management is saying, all of it is maybe pushing in another direction. Well, and ultimately, what's going to push in that direction is the team's performance. 
right? I mean, if you want to rebuild and be competitive in three years, like Horvat's only going to be 30, like he can still help you win. Mm -hmm. You know, he's still going to be helping a team win in three years. So, you know, he fits this club's preferred timeline of, you know, building in a way that doesn't require five, six years in the wilderness, right? Um, And yet, you know, if this team's not worth maintaining as as a club with a shot of making the playoffs, or or at least as a club that can convince fans in this market that they have a shot of making the playoffs, which I think we're perilously close to crossing the line where they can't, uh, you know, that that sort of changes how how it's regarded. Like at some point, right, this is sort of what this road trip is going to mean, and these are the stakes ahead for the Canucks players. You know, it might be overdue, but this group needs to earn the right to stay together, period. And I I think that's sort of how the next run of results over the course of the rest of this month and certainly this beginning with this road trip, I think that's going to be sort of the context, the lens through, um, you know, which to evaluate this team. Like, are they doing enough? Are they doing enough to have earned the right to stay together or should management be considering buyouts and trades and trades that take money back uh, because that's where we're going to get to and and not in some fanciful world this is not me pounding the table advocating for a rebuild this is how they're viewing it and that was the point of the piece right was to present my arguments for what what I sort of see but contrast it with how the club's actually thinking about these things and that's what I wrote at The Athletic, and I, I encourage our listeners to check it out, theathletic.com slash Canucks. Uh, that's going to do it for us today. As a reminder, as we talk about, you know, where Canucks management could be, th- what Canucks management could be thinking, where they see the team heading, uh, how important this road trip is for what they want to do with the team. Canucks president of hockey operations, Jim Rutherford, will be on the station uh, with uh, Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah at five o'clock this evening. That is going to be must listen. You'll get to, uh, a chance to hear directly from Jim Rutherford himself about uh, how he's evaluating the team and what could be in store if they do fall further out of the playoff race. Again, though, back in action against Ottawa tomorrow, first of a five-game road trip. We will be back, same time as always, noon, here on Sportsnet 650 to set it all up for you. Have a great rest of the day. We will be back tomorrow. It is Sportsnet 650.